Thank you for listening to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. For copyright and disclaimers, as well as information about how to contact the iCritical Care staff, please listen to the notice at the end of this podcast. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Savell. Today we have an opportunity to speak with Dr. William Meadow, MD, PhD. He's the lead author of an article recently published in the March 2011 edition of Critical Care Medicine, the title of which is Power and Limitations of Daily Prognostications of Death in the Medical Intensive Care Unit. Dr. Meadow is a professor of pediatrics at the University of Chicago. The citation for this article is Critical Care Medicine, 2011, Volume 39, Number 3. Thank you so much, Dr. Meadow, for joining us on the podcast. It's my pleasure. Uh, I thought I'd let you begin, as I usually do, by letting you give a little bit of background on the study. And as the sort of big picture for the listeners, um, I, as I was discussing with you just now, I, I absolutely love this paper. I, I love this study. I You're think it's very great. Kind. Because you, what I love about it when I'm trying to teach the fellows about good research, especially in a tough area like this, is you asked an incredibly important, incredibly simple question. You asked the nurse, resident, and fellow, and attending, do you think that this patient is going to die in the hospital or survive to discharge? And I thought I'd let you take it from there. Well, that's very kind of you. This paper is, is uh, an outgrowth of uh, work we've been doing for about 15 years now in our NICU, uh, the Newborn Intensive Care Unit where we are doing the same kind of research, looking basically at uh, physician, uh, whatever you want to call it, estimations, guesses, uh, intuitions. Um, we call it actually our crystal ball uh, project uh, because, in, in essence, you're looking through a, into a crystal ball and trying to determine whether or not uh, you can read the future, as Professor Trelawney might have said. That's my only Harry Potter reference of the, the morning, unless you want more. Um, <clears throat> anyway, the idea is that uh, docs all the time, whether it's in the NICU or the MICU, we've done a great deal of work in the MICU for, let's say, 15 years or so, um, have uh, an obligation to try to continually update families or patients if they're sentient, um, but certainly families, um, about how things are going and whether or not they think uh, continued intervention is worth it. And uh, one of the difficulties that we saw right away, both in the baby unit and in the uh, the big people unit, as I call you guys, is that many of the uh, algorithms that are done, like Apache in your world or Snap in our world, uh, are done on admission. But at some level, we thought that that missed a big component of intensive care, which is a trial of therapy. Uh, most patients who are admitted to intensive care are admitted uh, for a trial of therapy with a sort of tacit agreement among the family or the patient and the physicians that we'll see how this works. If things go well, that's terrific, and the patient will get discharged and hopefully go home. And if things don't go well, well, then we should revisit the question of whether or not continued intensive intervention is worth it, or should we move to a different mode, and that would obviously be palliative care. And so what I'd, what I'd like to do for the rest of the podcast is I've kind of tried to do my homework and carefully organize your very important, very co uh, somewhat complex results uh -huh. and let you make some comments as I, as I bring them up. And, I, and I, so the first step is it looks like there were about 560 patients. And again, quoting from the, from the article, you really divided your results into two major areas. The first was sort of what happens 
in the ICU as you look over time in terms of survivors and and percentage of people surviving and and what happens over time the first 10 days or so and the second is how valuable were our predictions and so let me just read a little bit here and let you make some comments so you point out two points emerge first that the MICU population was transformed within 72 hours of MICU admission only 20 percent of the original population remained in the MICU by day four second Proportionally, more survivors than non-survivors were discharged in the first 72 hours. Consequently, the likelihood of survival to hospital discharge was lower for patients who remained in the MICU on day four, and by 10, only 6% of the survivors remained in the MICU. And again, this reminds me of an important article I did uh, a discussion with Dr. Levy a few years ago, that if you're not getting better, you're getting worse, and that when you get better, you should be getting better quickly. And I thought I'd let you take it from there. Well, I think uh, Dr. Levy got it just right. Um, So there are a couple of things to to say, and we we can let this uh, discussion sort of wander in any way you want. Um, So we've replicated this many times in our unit. Just to give you a feel, because adult ICUs sometimes have different styles or different flavors. Ours is a closed unit which means that every patient uh, admitted there is cared for by the ICU team. Uh, We do not have post-op surgical patients in this unit. I deliberately did that because otherwise you get confounded by things like how aggressive your anesthesiologists are at extubating post-op patients. If they're not aggressive, then the patients go there just to get extubated and then they're out. I wasn't interested in, in that world. But even strictly dealing with a really sick, big-time, I mean, the University of Chicago is sort of a big-time place for adult critical care, um, uh, a big, busy uh, unit that, you know, probably admits 100 patients a month kind of thing. What you find is that uh, most of the patients are gone in three days, uh, three quarters, two thirds, you know, 80%. Uh, and most of those patients are gone because they're alive and out of the unit and are going to go home uh, <clears throat> or at least gonna get out of the hospital. Um, that's an important point for a couple of reasons. Uh, and, and let me just uh, outline a, a few of them. One of the reasons that it's important, I think, is uh, when you guys, by you guys I mean adult critical care guys, read your own literature, it strikes me that one of the points that's not as prominently sort of displayed as it should be is when you guys look at outcome studies from adult ICU admissions, usually they are, duh, all patients admitted, and then how well they did in terms of survival or something like that. That, it turns out, although it seems obviously to be the right thing to do, turns out to be pretty unhelpful, both from an ethical perspective or an economic perspective, because so many of your patients turn around and are out that what you really should be interested in, I would argue, is outcomes of patients who are there three or four days or more. So in other words, take four days or more. Then your world's a very different world, because all of these early patients are gone. All of them pretty much do well. They're relatively cheap. And that's a very different sort of feel compared to the patients who are there four days or more. If you look at uh, um, the, the curves on that, that figure one that you're talking about, the idea is that you, know, you start out with 560 patients on day one, of whom 460 are going to uh, survive, but by day four, you're down to about 50 and 50, survivors versus non-survivors. And so it's a wildly different world, and most of the patients who get discharged in the first three days are discharged alive as opposed to dying. And, and again, why I picked sure. this paper is that the, the kinds of patients, in my experience, 
who where this question becomes the uh, such a burning question, will this patient survive yep. or not, doesn't come up until a few days. Bingo. That's just right. And now I'm sure we'll talk a little bit more about some of the other uh, aspects of the paper. But yeah, you, the first half of the paper is basically epidemiology of the MICU has nothing to do with the prognostication study, and it's just a reminder to you guys, and I believe it's true, it's certainly been true in our MICU when we've replicated this time and time again, is that the first three-day population is wildly different from patients day four on. Day four or on, it's 50-50, you're going to live or die, whereas uh, on day one, it's you know, 75% or 80% of your patients are going to live. Um, and what I'd like to do for the bulk of the study, and, and I've written this all down here, are sure. to focus in on some of your these prediction profiles. Yep. And so I, I'm, I'm going to try and organize it for the listeners. First, we're going to talk about prediction profiles for the survivors, mm-hmm. prediction profiles for the non-survivors, discordant predictions, yep. and then you talked about the predictive profile of multiple predictions. And right. so we'll so just... Let me, let go me ahead. I'm sorry. Interrupt. No, no, it's okay. Just for one quick methodologic point, I promise it'll be the only methodologic point. We deliberately chose a metric, predictions, that many reviewers and readers at times uh, find uncomfortable. Uh, they say it's not nearly um, scientific enough. Uh, we often get reviews th- or comments like, if if this were an IL-12 value that had this predictive power, this would be a terrific, terrific uh, advance, but it's too mushy. We don't believe it. It can get pushed around. We'll talk a little bit about that over the course of uh, the rest of this cast. It turns out that the reason we chose it was docs do it all the time. This, when you say it, uh, you mean the will this, will this patient survive yeah, or not? Right. You think about it on every one of your patients. Is this guy going to make it or is he not going to make it? You know, if they're not going to make it, how sure am I that they're not going to make it? Did I think that way yesterday? Do, do other people agree with me? Those are the kinds of decisions that we intensivists make every day on every patient. We were just testing their prognostic value. Yeah, I, I can tell you, having nothing to do with the study, I agree with you 100%. So. Nice. <laughs> there you go. You it, should be it, my next it's, it's very It's very relevant, uh, and, it, and again, I was on a couple nights ago, and I'm on again tonight, yeah, and, and these are the questions that are asked of me, uh, and, and I tend to work in a, in a neurosurgical ICU primarily, uh-huh. but these issues come up there as well, sure. and, and the, uh, it would be another fascinating study, I'm sure. Oh, yeah, yeah, and actually, we'll talk a little bit about the... So let's talk about the data first, right. and then we'll talk. There are, there are two major tweaks of the data, and we'll talk about them. Okay. So the first thing you spoke about were prediction profiles for survivors, and I just want to make a couple quick points that uh, 77% did survive to hospital discharge. Sure, and that's true for almost all ICU studies that you see. Most ICU patients survive to discharge, and as I said before, of all the sort of results in the paper, that's the least interesting, because the vast majority of these survivors okay, were known by everybody on every day that they were going to survive, and about 80% of all survivors were gone by day four. So they didn't cost a lot of money. Everybody knew they were going to live. They got admitted to the unit sort of almost as a precautionary or a relatively straightforward intervention, and then they're gone. And then just to reiterate, the one I thought that was very interesting was that 77% of their days were characterized by everyone agreeing that they would live. Well, actually... Or, I, I think I, I got that right. 100% accurate prediction of survival by yeah, every medic. Yeah, so actually 77% of patients were characterized by 100% prediction of every day. Right. So it's, in fact, way more than 77% of all the days. Right. Um, these are easy patients. And, and just as a quick point, just because some of your listeners may have run in different units, we do not put the rule-out MIs in this unit. 
They go to a coronary ICU. So this is not, oh, he's got a goofy population of a bunch of people who had gastritis, but everybody thought they were heart attacks, so they got put in the unit. No, no, that's not true in our world. And then I think the, the important thing you would say then is to move on to the non-survivors and, and our predictions for them. And, or, well, I'm let's, sorry. Go let's ahead. make um, one point, which is that the other quarter of the survivors had at least, a, at least one day characterized by prediction of death which begins to hint at this phenomenon that we're wrong some of the time when we say, I think this guy is not going to make it. Right, and then you have your 3% yep. where, where everybody thought that, that, uh, that yep. they weren't going to make it. Yep. Um, I thought, you know, the, the counter-argument is 3% not bad, right? Oh, no, 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 <laughs> but that's 3% of all survivors. That's sort of, we'll, we'll talk about positive okay. value of intuitions in a okay. Um so then you spoke about the people who did not survive their hospitalization, and 60 per, or 57% of non-survivors had every day of their MICU stay characterized by unanimous caretaker predictions of death. Yeah, that's right. In other words, it's a little more than half. So if you look at the patients who eventually die in hospital, a little more than half, everybody knew it every day. And a little less than half, some people thought, you know, he's got a shot. In fact, a quarter of them at least on one day, everybody thinks this guy's going to make it, and then they don't. Um, so non-survivors are a little less obvious than uh, the survivors in the sense that only 50% of them, everybody's sure they're going to die, and the other half, there's some controversy about it. So let me ask you a question sure. before we go, go mm-hmm. on to some more of the data. Is, is when I'm talking with families or when yep. we discuss this with fellows, the, the concept of applying statistics to an individual patient, and if you want to talk about it now, uh, that would be a good time. That's tough. And so what I, what I will word to families is I will say, or I'll teach the fellows, we'll do like a role play. And I say, you know, if you looked at a thousand patients who yeah. six days into it were still on pressors on the vent on 80% yep. oxygen and a peep of 12, yep. the likelihood of that person making it out of the hospital is, is fairly low. Okay, now, uh, so this is a terrific <laughs> question. So obviously you live in this world as do I. Okay, so... If you're living in a world where the best you can do for data, and we'll talk about this paper. This paper, I'm just to sort of uh, not bury the lead. This is the first of several studies that are going to come out of our place for our MICU. Okay, Um, and let's let's move now, if you'd like. I mean, we're going to go a little out of order, but I think it's worth it. Um, To uh, what can I say about prediction? Okay, if the best I could say is, given everything I know, the predictive value, and we've studied this a great deal with a lot of statistics, is that you have a one chance in three of going home. Okay, Then I would argue that at some patient care level, even if the p-value is significant, okay, from a patient care perspective, I don't think that's very relevant. In other words, in my world, most parents, I deal with babies, but um, most patients or families of loved ones, if you told them they got a one in three shot, of making it through this, most people would say, I'll take that. Now, if it turned out, giving your example of, you know, four days on event and pressers and a peep at 12 and, and like that, what if the chances were three in 100? Then I think, see, at some point, I think that quantitative flips to qualitative. If I said you got a one in 100 chance of getting through this, do you really want to go through all of this pain, agony, perhaps expense, depending upon, quite frankly, how your insurance status is, a lot of people, I think, would answer differently from if I told you you had a one in three chance. And that's the point of this study. What can we know 
at some level, and echoing Richard Nixon, when do we know it? Right. So, so um, this leads to your discussion of discordant predictions, and I'm right. just going to read in some of the data and let you let you sure. speak. So, you wrote here that 41% of the MICU patient days were characterized by disagreement within the team. Yep. And 38% of those patients eventually died. Yep. Um, the likelihood of predictive discord increased as time went on. And yep. It sounds to me like that's one of the most important take-home messages of your of your manuscript. Well, I certainly think it's one, and, and it's one that you hinted at when you gave me your example. Again, it, it, it reflects a couple of different things. One is it reflects the fact that the early patients who dominate the admission population were, and reflect, let's say, three-quarters of all the MICU patients are easy. Almost all of them are gone. And almost all of them live, and everybody knows it. The longer you stay in a MICU, the less likely you are to get out. It's a little bit like when I do this teaching. Um, it's a little bit like the Rambo movies. You know, the first night to escape is the best night to escape. Interestingly, it's the exact opposite in the NICU. In the NICU, every day you don't die, you're more and more likely to go home. In the adult unit, every day you don't get out, you're less and less likely to go home. So let me ask you two questions, sure. though, that, 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 that struck me while I was reading this, and yep. I wanted to ask you. Or, and if, I, if you wrote in the paper, I didn't see it, and That's I apologize. Right. But one was, I didn't see whether it was, uh, if there were differences between nurses and uh. physicians. <laughs> and then the other one is experience. And that uh. I can tell you personally, gaining experience over the last decade as finishing my first decade yep. as intensivist, I am a different person. Yeah, I'm you t- may be a different person, but... Okay. It is at least an <laughs> empirical question as to whether or not you're a better predictor. So everybody asks this question. When I give this talk to nurses, they, they, they say the nurses are best because the doctors are never to be found. If you give it to attendings like you, they say, oh, we're much better than the fellows and stuff like that. So, <laughs> so here are the data. Remember I told you that most of the days of the early patients, there's unanimous, there's unanimity. They're not discordant. Everybody says live, and for a small minority, everybody says die, Right. Okay, so we're now only talking for the most part about patients who are there four days or more. And let's make a couple of points. One is, it's really hard to be in the adult ICU and work there compared to the baby ICU. And here's why. Take an average nurse who's got two patients on their assignment. Okay, Okay. from day four on, half of those patients are going to die, which is say one of those two is going to die. The nurse doesn't know which one it is and the nurse disagrees with the doc about which one's going to die. That's a very stressful environment. In the NICU, the baby unit, it's wildly different. Every day, most people think that the babies are going to live, even if you were sick to babies on ventilators, and everybody knows it and everybody's right. So uh, the baby data, we're not going to talk much about for the rest of this time, but think about the discordant predictions. Now you ask me who's better. Well, it turns out that both of your intuitions were wrong. They were cute, but they were wrong, and they were common. Okay, the attendings are not much better. In fact, I've sent this stuff to education types to say, you know, everybody's intuition is that the attendings are better than the fellows of the residents, but it doesn't look like it much. And so either we need to re-educate attendings, or this is a crappy metric, but I don't think it is, and, you'll, and we'll talk about why in a sec. Um, or that's a pretty interesting thing. Here's what we do know. Nurses in general are more pessimistic. Okay, so when there's a discordant day, and a discordant day is easy to define. It's a day where somebody says live and somebody else says die. When there's a discordant day, the nurse is more likely to be the person who says die, and the attending is actually the most optimistic. Now it turns out that if you think about it, every discordant patient 
can either be right or wrong. In other words, you can be pessimistic, you predict die, and the patient dies, or you can be pessimistic, wrong, you predict die, and the, patient, and the patient lives. You can be optimistic, correct, that means that you predicted live, and the patient lived, or you can be optimistic, incorrect, you predicted live, and the patient died. Got it? Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, in that context, it turns out that since only about 40% of the patients died, on the whole, the attendings who tend to be more optimistic are a little more right. And the nurses who tend to be pessimistic are a little more wrong. But the nurses are right, are righter on the patients who eventually die, and the attendings are righter on the patients who eventually live. So it's not nearly as clear-cut as you might think about, oh, well, the experienced hands are much, much better at seeing the future compared to even residents, let alone fellows. Um, all right. I'm glad I asked. <laughs> <laughs> or, or maybe not. <laughs> um, and then the last point before yep. we get into the discussion is you sure. talked about the predictive power of multiple predictions. Yep. And so the, the way you quantitated this was you looked at this receiver-operator characteristics yep. curve between anybody saying die more than 50% uh, I think of, of the, the team of the team saying yep. die or everybody on the team saying yep. die, and I thought that was a fascinating statistical approach where you pointed out that as you gained sensitivity, you 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 were missing people. Or if yeah, you'd yeah. like to talk about that, sure. So um, mostly, I put in this is a technical point for your listeners. I think receiver operating curves are very difficult uh, for people to understand. I think they're not intuitive, and I think um, reviewers love them, and I can't quite figure out why. I think that clinicians only care about positive predictive value, which is to say, I predict you're going to die. How likely is it that I'm right or wrong? Sensitivity is a funny concept, and it has more to do with policymakers, and I'm happy to talk about it, but perhaps my next paper uh, or my next podcast. But what you want to know is, look, I think this patient's going to die, and three other people on my team think the patient's going to die. How likely is it that we're right? Well, it turns out that if there's a unanimous prediction of die, we're right about 80% of the time, or we're still wrong one time in five. Now, you can decide whether or not you think that's good or bad. And I mean, at some level for your listeners, what they need to do is reflect on if they told their parents or their loving family, hi, I think your loved one's going to die. I've been doing this a long time. The rest of my members of my team do too. And you should know that we're wrong one time in five. Now, what do you think? Do you want to keep going or not? See, what I would argue the take-home message of this, this paper is, I don't think one in five is good enough. I think that, you know, it's a little better than 50-50. And 50-50 is if one single person says die, we're right about half the time. So imagine this conversation, ma'am. You know, I think your loved one is, is very ill, and, and, and I think your loved one is, is not likely to survive. I've been doing this a long time. I'm experienced with this, and you should know that I'm wrong half the time. That seems like a funny conversation to have. Okay. Now, if you do multiple days, it turns out it doesn't have much impact. If you have multiple people on the same day, that has a bigger impact. But we're still wrong 15% of the time, 18% of the time. And increasingly stringent predictions, which is to say one person say die, corroborated die, or unanimous die, as you pointed out, they lose sensitivity. But I think that that's although important for policymakers, less important for you and me, the docs on the front line. The more people who think that the patient's not going to survive, the more likely you are that your predictions are right. So what I'd like to conclude with uh, is to read in, uh, again, you had these five major nice discussion points and then let you make some final comments. Okay, it's a deal. So, uh, again, I'm really glad I picked this paper. I love the way you analyze this. You talked about how the passing of time altered 
who was left in the ICU, and that was not counterintuitive. That made sense to me. Good. You said that the eventual outcomes for the MICU patients became less clear, not more clear over time. And again, that, that also helps. Because yep, the hard ones stay there. You said that a single prediction of death was really not much better than, than chance yep. in the MICU, and that there are certain small percentage of patients where we're wrong and, and very wrong. Um, you talked a lot about, and we didn't really address this because I, I thought it was good, but not uh, as as uh, surprising to yep. me. Seventy-five uh, percent of MICU deaths were negotiated. Yep. Again, th- there's been some data from UCSF now that sort of you know from from the past that corroborated that. Yep. And you pointed out that that subpopulations didn't matter, and I like that because your point was to say this is from one ICU, and yet when we look at what yep. we think might be either the higher or lower yep. risk groups, it didn't seem to matter. And um, I was wondering if you wanted to make some some sort of concluding points about sure. some of these issues. So, so thanks a lot for for asking me to do this. I I love this work. We do it a lot. I I, I want to just not forget to thank all the people at the University of Chicago, uh, particularly the young students who helped me do this work. The only methodologic point I'll make in the whole paper is that chocolate is really important in this paper. We have young students who walk around trying to find the caretakers and asking them about their patients. And if you bring a big basket of chocolate. They will say, okay, I'll trade you my intuitions for a piece of chocolate. And if you don't bring them chocolate, they'll say, I'm too busy, and then they run away. So that's, if anybody wants to replicate this. So you get that integrated into the grant requisition. (laughs) Now we cover that with our own costs. Okay, so there's only two concluding comments, and and I think that they're important for people who read this paper, and and thanks for uh, sort of being interested in it. My big concluding comment is, this isn't good enough. In other words, to be wrong 15, 20% of the time, even if you have a unanimous prediction, okay, that's not good enough. And it's not good enough in one of two possible ways, and we're working on both of them now. Here's one way. Maybe a prediction alone, an intuition alone, can be coupled with some more physiologic parameter, whether it's an Apache score, which we've actually looked at and is not very good, or uh, ventilator settings or multiple organ system damage or some number. In the NICU, we've done this and demonstrated that, a cl- that the combination of a clinical intuition with an abnormal head ultrasound, you don't guys don't do them in your unit, okay, now all of a sudden our positive predictive value instead of being 75, 80, 85% is 97%, 98%. And that, I think, is a game changer. So that's one game changer that we're looking for. What else can we combine with intuitions that matters. And we've looked, and intuitions always add power, even when you look at uh, any kinds of more physiologic variables. So we're going to keep intuitions in. What else can we add? And the other project that we're going to do, and this is my last comment, and then you can shut me up or whatever, goes like this. Maybe we're looking at the wrong outcome. Maybe we shouldn't look at just whether or not the patient survives the hospital or not. Because after all, if you survive the hospital because you have really good social workers and they send you out to hospice and then you pass away in a week or a month, then calling them a survivor seems a little off. Lumping them with the same kind of people who are back to work at six months seems misleading. And so we're looking at MICU follow-up. Now, it turns out that MICU follow-up is an interesting thing to do. It's really methodologically hard because you have to call all these people up. And if you work where I work, they change their phone numbers. There's a lot of IRB hassle about getting consent. Um, but we're working on that. We, we do everything through our IRB. Uh, and 
the point is that imagine if in the future I could do the following two things. One, combine intuitions with something else at the front end while you're in the hospital, and at the back end tell you not that the outcome is death in the hospital, but rather survival without significant morbidity later on, as opposed to survival with significant morbidity or death. Well, I mean, and not to interrupt, but sure, the, no, no, the, no, the other the other part of that, and yep. again, where I think I'm right, yep. and I'm sure you'll prove me wrong in Good. five years, is well, what about quality? What ah. if, and, and 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 this must obviously you're gonna. So no, 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 I think it's just right. In yeah. other words, sure, you can do Bartle scores or stuff like that. Um, yeah, imagine if it turned out that predictions of die. So I tell you that you know, let's say a patient is we're wrong 50% of the time, or if you have a corroborated one, we're wrong 25% of the time. But what if all of those 25% of patients, either by six months, were dead or severely impaired? If they were dead or severely impaired, then all of a sudden, the predictive power of these intuitions is much more clinically useful. Then think of the conversation you have with the family. Hi, I think that your loved one is very, very ill. I've been doing this a long time. I think your loved one is not going to make it. We've studied this, and what I know is that the likelihood that your loved one will either be dead or severely impaired in the next six months is 97%. Okay, now let's have a conversation about whether or not we should think about a different palliative kind of mode. If we could get to there, that I think would be a game changer for prognostication in adult critical care. And then to finally close, obviously the the public policy types like this kind of work because so many adults, as opposed to babies, are both going to die. And so many adults who die visit an intensive care unit in the year before they pass. And so if you want to do things like ratchet down health care costs, if you had a prognostic index that was really good, then you could begin to think about getting control at least. Well, you, you could, this goes right into the Dartmouth Atlas, where yep. living in New York City, we are attacked as, yep. you know, you could do your study on the Dartmouth Atlas work, yep. right, where you would look at everybody who died in the ICU and look backwards or, or something and say, what were the predictions, you know? Exactly right. That's exactly right. I know a great deal about the Dartmouth uh, Atlas. Uh, Jack Winberger, I think, is a terrific guy. But I do think that there are real problems, and comorbidities are one, and he, he admits that they are, I and mean, he's, no, he's no fool. But having said that, from a public policy perspective, that is a question. Right. I mean, and it's, a, it's one that I would argue is... Not an impossible one to answer. It'll take a lot of work, but we would hope that 10 years from now, we will have a, a follow-up paper. Actually, the follow-up paper is going to be hopefully soon in 10 years from now. follow-up paper with, with a combined outcome of death or significant impairment, and hopefully a prognostic feature that includes both intuitions and some sort of physiology. And if we could get those two particularly remember in patients who are there four days or more, because the other ones are cheap, it doesn't matter. So when you all read your outcome literature, don't be, as it were, deceived is the wrong word, but understand that outcomes of MICUs for all patients admitted are irrelevant. They all get better, or 75% get better in three days. It's what do you do with the hard ones? Right. That's where we need better work. Right. 
We've been speaking today with Dr. William Meadow. He's a professor of pediatrics at the University of Chicago, and the title of this manuscript is Power and Limitations of Daily Prognostications of Death in the Medical Intensive Care Unit. This was published in the March 2011 edition of Critical Care Medicine. I really want to thank you so much, Dr. Meadow, for being uh, part of uh, the podcast today. It was my great pleasure. This concludes another edition of the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. Please check out our website at www.sccm.org iCriticalCare for more information, as well as over five years of archived podcasts. For the iCriticalCare podcast, I'm Dr. Richard Savell. If you are unable to attend one of SCCM's live courses, you can view the educational sessions on your own time and at your own pace through SCCM On Demand. Videos containing both slides and lectures from our courses are available 45 days after the live event. Events such as SCCM's world-renowned board review courses and even Congress are now available on demand. For more information or to order an on-demand course, visit www.sccm.org store or ask to speak with a customer service representative. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. Your host is the Society's Associate Editor for Podcasts, Richard Savell, MD, FCCM. Dr. Savell is the medical co-director of the Surgical Intensive Care Unit at Montefiore Medical Center in New York City, practicing under the leadership of Vladimir Kavetin, MDFCCM. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email iCriticalCare at sccm.org or info at sccm.org. Dot org.